when he found Laertes alone on the tidy terrace, hoeing around a vine, disreputable in his gardening duds, patched and grubby, leather gaiters protecting his shins against brambles, gloves as well, to cap it all, sure sign of his deep depression, a goatskin duncher. Odysseus sobbed in the shade of a pear tree for his father, so old and pathetic, that all he wanted then and there was to kiss him and hug him and blurt out the whole story. But the whole story is one catalogue and then another. So he waited for images from that formal garden. Evidence of a childhood spent traipsing after his father and asking for everything he saw. The thirteen pear trees, ten apple trees, forty fig trees, the fifty rows of vines, ripening at different times, for a continuous supply. Until Laertes recognized his son and, weak at the knees, dizzy, flung his arms around the neck of great Odysseus, who drew the old man fainting to his breast and held him there, and cradled like driftwood the bones of his dwindling father. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Laertes by Michael Longley. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. If you're having trouble, you'll find a link to one below in the description. It is difficult to define what makes great poetry. What's the source of inspiration for it? Is it a muse or some unknowable force? Is a life of luxury a boon or a crutch in the making of it? Is it ultimately hardship that forges great poetry? In the case of the poetry of Northern Ireland, there's an argument to be made that it is that hardship that lies at the heart of it. Northern Ireland is no stranger to hardship. The social and political unrest that has shaped the country for many decades was given a name, the Troubles. That time of pure upheaval has given the country the form it bears today. And whilst much of its most turbulent events are behind it, the aftershocks of its history are still very much felt today. Throughout all of this conflict, the artists of Northern Ireland began to work this turmoil into expression, perhaps none more so than its poets. Indeed, much of Northern Irish poetry post-World War II was written about, or in response to, the Troubles. The insight gained from this poetry by the rest of the world has ensured that the Northern Irish poetic canon has its place among the greatest poetry of the 20th century and beyond. It led to a particular title being created for poets of that specific time and place, the Ulster Poet. Unfortunately, with this newfound title came a severe pigeonholing of sorts. 
For many within what would become known as the Ulster Renaissance, the term Ulster poet was far more restrictive than complementary. Indeed, many believed that it made Northern Irish poetry inextricable from the political conflict it found itself surrounded by. This was a terrible thing for a number of reasons, all of which were perhaps put best by Edna Longley in her essay, Poetry and Politics in Northern Ireland. Here she states, Poetry and politics, like church and state, should be separated. And for the same reasons, mysteries distort the rational processes which ideally prevail in social relations, while ideologies confiscate the poet's special passport to terra incognita. Its literary streak, indeed, helps to make Irish nationalism more a theology than an ideology. Conor Cruz O'Brien calls the area where literature and politics overlap an unhealthy intersection, because, suffused with romanticism, it breeds bad politics, fascism and nationalism. But it also breeds bad literature, particularly bad poetry, which, in a vicious circle, breeds, or inbreeds, bad politics. That vicious circle is something many of the Northern Irish poets would place themselves in opposition to as their careers went on. For Michael Longley in particular, he felt that it led people to believe in degrees of Irishness. That is to say that some people were more Irish than others. Here he is discussing that harmful concept in 1997. Well, my own mother and father came from London uh, to live in Belfast in 1927. Um, I was there, I was born there in 1939. Um, and I consider myself Irish since um, Ireland has given me most of the data out of which I make sense of uh, experience. But I'm bound to be true to the uh, Britannic or British tinge uh, in my background. And um, I don't think that makes me any the less Irish than, say, somebody whose grandparents and great-grandparents were born somewhere in the middle of uh, Ulster or, or, or Connacht. Um, you know, I once heard a very silly person say, um, that Yeats wasn't really an Irish poet because he was a Protestant. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there are people who go around thinking, you know, I'm more Irish than, 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 the, than the next person. Um, I'm Irish mainly because I happen to have been born there and because I love the place. Within his words are the tones and themes of much of his poetry. Michael Longley has always searched for a sense of belonging in his work. This is especially true of his earlier work, which seemed to struggle to make sense of a Northern Ireland in utter chaos, with no sense of place or security lasting long enough for the poet to hold on to. It is no wonder, then, that the poet spent time in France and the United States throughout his life, on a seeming pilgrimage to make sense of his identity and life to that point. Even before that, he attended Trinity College in Dublin, where he admits his love of poetry was kindled. He attended in 1958, and it was, once again, a further distancing from his home city. All these long absences are reminiscent of the voyages of the great Greek hero, Odysseus. Odysseus was kept from his home for 20 long years through tragedy and mishap. 
visiting many strange places before finally setting foot in his hometown of Ithaca once more. Throughout that entire 20 year absence, his father Laertes mourned and grieved for his missing son. Odysseus, in the famous text, has waited until all other business is settled to see his father once more, and their reunion is filled with deep emotion and unspoken words. So what then is Longley trying to communicate by choosing this as the setting to retell his tale? His own father passed away in 1960, and this poem was not published until 1995, in the collection The Ghost Orchid. The poem is a possible attempt to convey Longley's own grief at what he never got a chance to say to his father. However, it would be disingenuous not to note that this poem and the collection it comes from came in the wake of the IRA ceasefire agreement in 1994. Longley may have seen this as a cause for hope and an end to hostilities in the north, and so the return of Odysseus from his own beleaguered journey would be a fitting analogy for reflection and peace. A quick note before we go further, I've split the poem into three sections to help with analysis. In the initial section, Longley sets the scene for his audience. When he found Laertes alone on the tidy terrace, hoeing around a vine, disreputable in his gardening duds, patched and grubby, leather gaiters protecting his shins against brambles, gloves as well, and, to cap it all, sure sign of his deep depression, a goatskin duncher. The minute details that Longley is famous for are on display here. The reader is painted a picture of a man laid low by grief. The man is alone and isolated. He is tending to his garden in full protective regalia. The gardening duds, leather gaiters and gloves are all armour. What they protect him from is very simple, his own garden. In choosing to portray Laertes in this way, Longley has reinforced the notion of his frailty. He is protecting himself from the things that he has spent an entire lifetime working with. Old age has made him weak. It is also a possible reference to the armour that ordinary people in Northern Ireland had to wear during the height of the Troubles. No domestic space, like a garden, was sacred. Violence could strike at any time, and so the notion of people wearing armour in their own homes was not such a strange one. The language of this initial section is very interesting. It is describing a famous scene from the classic work The Odyssey, and yet the language used is firmly from Belfast making it distinctly anachronistic, that is to say, jarring with the time in which it is set. It is Longley's way of infusing the ancient scene with his own experience. Words like duds and goatskin duncher are very much at home in Northern Ireland. The inclusion of this modern language ensures that it holds relevance to a modern audience. All in all, this opening section shows us a possible portrait of Longley's working-class father, perhaps as Longley saw him in the later years of his life. The next section shows us the monumental toll this frail portrayal has on the hero Odysseus. Odysseus sobbed 
in the shade of a pear tree for his father, so old and pathetic that all he wanted then and there was to kiss him and hug him and blurt out the whole story. But the whole story is one catalogue and then another, so he waited for images from that formal garden, evidence of a childhood spent traipsing after his father and asking for everything he saw. The thirteen pear trees, ten apple trees, forty fig trees, the fifty rows of vines, ripening at different times for a continuous supply. Here, the father-son relationship is brought center stage. Odysseus, the bold hero, is reduced to an almost childlike state. He feels the surge of emotion and wants to blabber on and on as he sees the weakness in his father. He wants to make up for twenty long lost years. He is then struck with the uncertainty of where to even begin his tale. Where does one begin a catalogue of misery? How does one make sense of such a twisted tale? Would there even be a point to attempting it? I am always struck by the sheer sense of futility found in these lines. The fact that Odysseus so desperately wants to connect with his father, but seems unable to do so. I imagine that feeling was compounded in Longley, writing this poem a full 35 years after his father's death in 1960. I am struck by how it is a reflection on all the things that Longley failed to say when he was younger. Perhaps the things that he can only recognise now in his own old age. In the face of such an inability to communicate, Odysseus retreats into memory. Longley has long been regarded as a poet of memory. His attention to detail and descriptive power make him acutely suited to the task. He often seeks to preserve the past as best he can. Here, at the realisation of how much time has been lost, Odysseus begins to take an inventory of his youth, spent traipsing after his father. He attempts an almost mechanic, objective inventory of his surroundings. The thirteen pear trees, ten apple trees, forty fig trees, the fifty rows of vines, are all an attempt to freeze these things in time, protect them from the ravages of it. However, far from achieving this, the listing only serves to quantify and so heighten their loss. Longley often uses this listing technique. As academic Sarah Broom points out, while Longley is often acutely disturbed by loss and mutability, his poetry does not reflect an effort to stave off or defend against these experiences. In fact, his use of lists and inventories often acts to intensify a sense of disruption, uncertainty and loss. This sense of disruption adds a bittersweet taste to the final lines, ripening at different times for a continuous supply. Odysseus, at one point, may have thought that he too had a continuous supply of time left with his father. This is certainly the case when one is a child. Our parents seem to us titans that age cannot touch, and it is only as we grow older that we realise that no human is untouchable. This realisation is given a tragic poignancy 
in the final section of the poem. Until Laertes recognised his son and, weak at the knees, dizzy, flung his arms around the neck of great Odysseus, who drew the old man fainting to his breast and held him there and cradled like driftwood the bones of his dwindling father. The sheer frailty of this man is once more revealed in verbs and adjectives like weak, dizzy, fainting and dwindling. All give the impression of wasting away or reaching the end. Now his father is in the childlike position as he throws his arms around the great Odysseus. This inversion is given added weight when you realise Laertes' own place within Greek myth. He was one of the men who set sail with the Argonauts and the mighty Jason to find the Golden Fleece. His own reputation preceded Odysseus and he was widely respected and admired within Greek mythology. With this knowledge, his downfall and dwindling strikes the reader even more. Odysseus realises that it is all too late for their relationship now and can only cradle the bones of his dwindling father. Odysseus now occupies the mighty space his father did and is set to inherit everything of Ithaca. In 1995, Michael Longley, when writing this, is a much older man and perhaps found himself contemplating his father's own point of view as he had now reached a similar age. Perhaps he came to understand his father better or perhaps simply appreciated just how much he lost when his father died so early in his own life. Much like Odysseus can do little but cradle his father's bones, Longley can do little but cradle his father's memory. So, why this poem? Michael Longley has long been one of my favourite poets, and to me, one of the finest still working today from the Northern Irish canon. His use of the classics to parallel modern events has always been supremely fitting to me, and I think his work shows how much value there is to be found in the past. This poem, Laertes, is a poignant fusion of the modern and archaic. I think it cuts right to the core of the reader and makes them feel the immediate sense of loss and time running out. It is a testament to the power that some poets wield to make an audience empathise and sympathise with the world around them, even when the events written about do not directly affect them. I mentioned earlier in the episode that this poem came in the wake of the 1994 ceasefire in Northern Ireland. Within its lines are a recognition of the hope that this brings, but at the same time, an unblinking examination of the loss that has come before it. One of the criticisms often levelled against the frequent use of classical mythology in Northern Irish poetry is that it heroicises the bloody events of the Troubles and dehumanises the extreme violence that took place there. Here, however, I think Longley deftly avoids that distancing by setting the poem up as a distinctly father-son based tragedy. No one can read this poem without feeling the tug of lead in their chest, the same one that Odysseus must feel at the realisation of his loss. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, 
and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can find my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com, where you'll also find the show notes for this episode, complete with references to everything I've written about. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast, and there you can find helpful study guides and bonus content too. I'd like to give a very special thank you to my girlfriend Hannah, who reminded me just how great a poet Michael Longley is, and gave me what is frankly one of the most beautiful poetry books I've ever seen, with this poem inside. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Sid Akaria, and is used under Creative Commons license. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving me a review on whatever platform you listen on. Or, if you know someone who might enjoy it, send it directly to them. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me once again. And hopefully, you'll hear from me again soon.